Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight's featuring commentary by Democrat Patrick Hanley. He's a management consultant. Republican Jeannie Ives, a graduate of West Point and a leading conservative politician in the state of Illinois. Major Bill Myers, United States Marine Corps, retired. And also later on the broadcast, uh, Dr. Nigel Rabb, who will join us from Loyola Marymount University. He is an expert in uh, Russian history, and uh, uh, Russian history is being made right now, so we're going to ask him to think uh, both contemporary and in a historical standpoint. Uh, again, lots to talk about. Always interested in your thoughts. 1-800-723-8289. One of the issues that has been debated back and forth, although slapped down by virtually anyone with authority in the United States, and notwithstanding the appeal of uh, President Zelensky, is the concept of a no-fly zone. And I want to get reaction. Jeannie Ives, we're going to start with you. A no-fly zone. Do you support that or not? Uh, not with U.S. Uh, fighter pilots going into over Ukrainian airspace to potentially shoot down Russian planes. And your that son would... is a is a pilot. My son is a Navy pilot. Okay. Mm-hmm. He is not deployed right now, but he is right. slated to be deployed later this year, and that would sort of be his territory. But mm. uh, I just know it's this would totally be uh, an aggressive attack on our end as the United States, and that would be that would start World War III. Patrick Hanley. Happy to start the show by agreeing with my uh, my colleague here. Uh, a no-fly zone is really the opportunity for U.S. fighter pilots to shoot down Russian planes. A no-fly zone means that we restrict Russians from flying in a certain area, which means that if they cross any bo- boundary, we're, we're ready to shoot them down. This is World War III. We, we simply can't do it. Uh, Bill Myers, Major, what do you think of a no-fly zone? Well, I'm going to I'm going to join with everyone else and agree. I think it's a a, a wonderful idea and concept, but mm-hmm. to actually uh, go down that path with the the, you know, the potential of a nuclear confrontation, uh, very very frightening, and the, and the stakes become just out of out of control. Well, I'm going to begin by disagreeing with all my guests. I <laughs> like the idea of a no-fly zone. Again, perhaps it's an uneducated guess, but let me ask a couple of follow-up questions. I'll start with you, Major. Um, you say that it possibly could lead to further nuclear action. What do you think the Russian reaction would be if we shot down one mm-hmm. Russian jet? Would that would that send them off into Never Never Land? Good question. It's kind of an unknowable thing, but yes. um, I don't know how to answer that. I don't think so. I don't think that would uh, would push even even Putin who's the unknown uh, player in all this, uh, which way he's going to go, to the brink of, of a nuclear war. Um, I think that maybe the fear of a nuclear conflict might be overshadowing uh, everyone's thinking to the extent that we just, we're not willing to do anything. But I think if Ukraine is going to survive, they have to, they have to at least uh, clear the skies above yeah. their territory right. somehow. Mm-hmm. Are we more fearful of a nuclear war than Russia, Jeannie? 
It seems well, to me that we're the ones, we're the nervous certainly. Nellies about it. Yeah. Uh, most certainly we are. We're, we're also afraid of just getting pulled into this conflict any further. But let's be clear here. The Russian Defense Ministry spokesman said even the use of an airfield network mm -hmm. in other countries to base Ukrainian military aircraft and their subsequent use against Russian armed forces would be regarded as involvement of those states into armed conflict. Mm -hmm. They have also said, Putin has said, that sanctions are an act of war. Right. So isn't everything, you, mm -hmm. you look cross-eyed at the guy, he thinks it's an act of war. So why, why would using the airspace, I mean, clearly, uh, if the United States, or I'm not saying United States, if NATO is enforcing a no-fly zone, isn't Russia, they're the ones that are pushing it if they're still sending people into Ukraine airspace. And I'm not talking about Russian space. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say suggest go to Russian space. I'm talking about Ukraine airspace. Russia doesn't own that. And Zelensky is asking the West, please, West, help us clear our air zone. Well, and so are uh, U.S. citizens that are of Ukrainian descent and that have Ukrainian um, and, uh, uh, yes, family members still there. They are specifically asking me, and in fact, I've gotten text messages, get the message out, we need help mm -hmm. uh, protecting our airspace. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but there have, I mean, there's a, a lot of steps to take prior to that happening, and we can take those steps, like giving them the MiG-29s right. that are sitting in Poland, and okay. arming them with stingers and javelins and okay. other is that your, Is that your backup position as well, Patrick, that no-fly zone uh, uh, instituted and imposed by the NATO countries, but if Ukraine wants to do it, with borrowed weapons, borrowed yes. airplanes, it's okay. Absolutely, yes. And I think that's the policy and you that don't we're think pursuing with your allies now. would react to that now. in the same way. So what I think is really interesting about right now, we are certainly in a brave new world of international relations. Right. And we are figuring mm -hmm. out now what is the line past which everything escalates. Throughout the Cold War, we thought we knew where that was. We had a red phone to the common turn, right? So we were, we were in close touch with the general secretary. Uh, and now, because the Soviet Union doesn't, technically exist. We don't have that kind of a relationship with Russia because we're not meant to have nuclear standoffs. So we don't know where the line is. If we cross it, we start to escalate into nuclear war. And that was always the problem during the Cold War is that past a certain point, if you hit a tank with a javelin missile, everything leads to war. Do you believe, do you believe, and then, well, I'm going to go back to Bill again. Do you believe that uh, NATO knocking down one, or for the moment, one, one uh, Russian jet, do yeah. you think that that would react in them going um, overboard yeah. and reacting in a, in a nuclear way? Yeah. So Who would the, they the, nuke? Who would they nuke? No, no, no. This is a good question. And then the reality is they would then hit a jet. We would then hit two jets. They would then hit an airfield. And then from there, as soon as we threaten a strategic base of theirs from which nukes, nukes could be shot, there's going to be an incredibly strong incentive for Russia and for the United States to implement a first strike. Right. If we get Bill, even you, a little bit worried. Do you, agree, do you agree with that assessment by Patrick? I, I agree that it's one of several possible outcomes. Uh, I'm thinking if, if we all go back to just before the, the Gulf War 20 years ago, Saddam Hussein said, you know, if you cross our borders, the blood will, yeah. the streets will flow with yeah. blood and, and everybody was terrified and, and uh, et cetera. And we, we completely crushed their Soviet supplied and trained mm -hmm. military in four days. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so once again, I think there's a, a degree. I think uh, there's a degree of bluster coming from uh, Putin. Anything we say, we be in the West, 
he throws out the "Hey, don't make me mad, or I'll or I'll bomb you." I'm not so sure that that he actually has what it takes to do it, but everybody's afraid to take a chance. And right. I do think the re- Ukrainians need heroic support of some sort. And I'm not saying warfare necessarily. Uh, they need help. They need they need a strong West telling Putin we're not going to stand for this. How to do that? I'm not really sure. Bill, a question to you, and I want to get a reaction from Jeannie and Patrick, and I'd also like to get reaction from those uh, listening out uh, in the radio audience. Um, what would Putin do? We again, we don't know. Everybody's saying that he's a nutcase. We don't know, but what would he do? Who who would he nuke? Who would he nuke in retaliation for one shootdown of a Russian flight? This is the story of a very special woman. Don't tell me the answers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, the scenario that I painted before uh, the break was... Uh, let's say there is a no-fly zone imposed, although nobody looks like it's going to happen. But let's say it doesn't happen. This is with this is NATO, and uh, a Russian plane gets shot down by some NATO pilot. What does Vladimir Putin do next? He's 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 rattled the nuclear sable. Uh, what does he do next, Major Myers? I'm going to start with you. Who, who gets the first uh, taste of Russian retaliation? So I appreciate the fact we had that commercial so I could think about this a little bit. <laughs> um, all of the, the NATO powers, all of the Western powers, or almost all of them, are, are nuclear capable, and, and some of us are nuclear superpowers. Several of us on this show were all raised uh, in the era of, of uh, mutually guaranteed or mutually assured destruction. Right. So if the, the Russians fired on us or we fired on them, one or both of our, our civilizations would be gone. Putin grew up during that era. Uh, that's very real. I mean, he can he can say we're going to blow up. I'm going to blow up uh, the United States, but Russia is going with us. And so it seems to me, if he were if he were to try something nuclear, no matter who shot down the plane, it would probably a strike probably be a strike in Ukraine. A strike in Ukraine. So he he would. Uh, a, a bigger bomb, a bitter, b- bigger destruction already in a country that he wants to ultimately not occupy. He doesn't want to occupy it, but it looks like uh, he's going to have to occupy it. Okay, that's your answer. Uh, Patrick uh, Hanley, your answer. That's interesting. I, I would have thought about it a little bit differently, Major. The way that I think about uh, kind of these tit-for-tat nuclear escalations is that you always want to take out your adversary's nuclear capability. That's the most important thing, because then if there's a second strike, you know that you're toast. So why wouldn't he go after nuclear targets in Europe, like in uh, the United Kingdom or France? Why wouldn't he want to take out, uh, you know, the possibility that rivals can then fire nuclear weapons at him? Why would he waste a nuke in okay. Ukraine? Let's, let's, Bill, re- respond to that before we go to Jeannie. Uh, well, I, I, I would say that would be a, a wasted nuke, but um, if you look, if you look out from Russia at his adversaries, there are a lot of us. Mm. And uh, we're looking at him as a as a superpower out of control right now. But he has to look back and realize that if we ever got to the point where we decided to fight it, uh, all of NATO will be coming that way. So he yeah. takes out all of France's nukes. Uh, every NATO country is obligated to respond. Yeah. And we've got combined more missiles than he does. But my, my question would be, you say take out all of France's uh, nukes and uh, nuclear capability. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting maybe he just does one. Would, would he really try to completely with with one um, <laughs> with with one mistake or, or right. one plane shot down? Would he try to blow out an entire country's uh, military uh, and nuclear capability, or would he just go tit for tat? I'm gonna you know we're gonna bomb an airfield and we'll get one yeah. or two of them. Because I think if if he went all out, well then his response is the response to him is going to be all out. So, anyway, so, I, so that's Gina. why I don't think that he actually would use some sort of tactical yeah. nuke hmm. uh, as the, the response. Even I, though I, he's spoken about it. Yes, I know he's spoken about it, but um, that's a, 
even for a madman, if people want to consider him that, I think that that's a, a stretch. Do so you? I think that he, I, listen, he's having a hard time mm -hmm. right now even trying to capture the capital city of Kiev. Mm -hmm. So I, he's, I think he would just up the ante. I think he would probably uh, pull every force he possibly can, maybe bring his, um, mm. his ships in to fire from ship. I don't think that we've really seen much of that action mm -hmm. happening. And I think that he just ups the ante and just goes all in and sees, sees if he can when, uh, take out some more. When he forces. said, when Putin said, uh, the first one to, to talk about, nu you know, my, my nuclear uh, weapons are, are on alert or put mm -hmm. the team on alert, um, everyone thought that it was going to be the beginning of World War III. There will be an incident and uh, little bombs and missiles will be going back and forth. Do you think that the, uh, the attack on... Uh, on the nuclear plant was perhaps deliberately done so that people would be talking about the potential. Mm -hmm. I mean, it didn't explode, mm -hmm. but it sure well, as hell got a lot of people talking about it. But yeah. that, that particular plant provided a large percentage, I don't even remember the percentage, but a large percentage of Ukrainians' energy. Well, yeah. the first thing you want to do is knock out their power systems yeah. so that you put them in the dark. They can't run their trains. They can't run any of their... But uh, because it was nuclear, would people be th would some yeah. people be thinking? You know what? When he talks about nuclear, that's what he's talking about. Bill, is that supply. too goofy an idea? I, I suppose you could argue it either way. Um, I think it probably had more to, to do with the fact that it is the energy supply for Kiev in that area. Uh -huh. um, while I've got the floor, a thought I'm having right now is it seems mm -hmm. to me that Putin has controlled the if you will the psychological mm -hmm. uh presentation of this entire thing and i think at at heart uh he views the leadership of the western world as pretty weak right now and he's mm -hmm. basically using bully tactics uh of hey don't make me mad or i'm going to come and hit you mm -hmm. and we seem to be responding to those threats um but he surely knows better than anybody else that there, there are points beyond which if you make all of us mad enough he's not going to win that's such an interesting point, Major, and, uh, and, and Bruce, that's a devious point that you make about using the nuclear power plant to mm -hmm. get the West to talk about nukes. Yeah. And I think it's a good one. It's an information war that's happening at the same right. time as the conventional mm -hmm. war. I would actually disagree with you a little bit, Bill, and I'd say that uh, I think he is surprised by the resilience of the West, by the unity of the West, by the new German policy to get involved in a war, Swiss policy, Swedish policy, all with U.S., strong U.S. leadership. And so I think he's... You know, he's grasping at straws a little bit. And this is this is one more card that he has. Get us worried about nukes. Let's let's move now from uh, the possibility of a no-fly zone, which may not never have been a real possibility. I want to move to what's on the table now, uh, which supposedly has been agreed upon uh, by the White House. Allegedly, there was not a lot of this happened. There was, a, there was a little news bit on it. And that is that the United States would lend some of its uh, military fighters to a country like Poland, <clears throat> and then Poland would take its weapons, its its air, aircraft, uh, much of which is you know Russian aircraft, and would turn that over to Ukrainian fighters to fight and set up their own no-fly zone. Now, Bill, what do you think of that idea? That that sounds like a pretty ingenious idea. Well, that's the most practical, uh, strategic, uh, or at least operational move that I can picture. Uh, in the direction of a no-fly zone uh, in conjunction with a, a lot of stinger missiles and, mm -hmm. and anti-air weapons 
uh, they could maybe get a degree of parity and, uh, and a, a degree of overhead protection for their, their own fight. Bill, I'm at one of your areas of expertise is is weaponry, and we've heard for the last uh, ten days, uh, Stinger missile, Javelin missiles. Uh, we've heard a lot of uh, uh, terminology thrown around. Uh, if you're watching this and following this, uh, you're an expert on some of these. Tell us what these things can do. What what is the what is the strength and weakness, for instance, of a Stinger missile? Well, a Stinger missile is a is a it's a proven, these things have been around for a long, long time. Uh, it's a proven uh, anti-air uh, system. It's uh, it's uh, man portable. One single person can can carry it, uh, not too far, but uh, can carry it and, and launch a missile. It's a fire and forget. So you, you fire the thing and you move off to another protected position. Once the, the, the missile has locked on the, the heat signature of the identified target, uh, it basically almost cannot escape, the plane almost cannot escape the missile. Uh, and if, if the plane uses um, uh, countermeasures, the warhead is trained to, to just change its course a little bit in order to anticipate where the plane would be. And, and it's got a very, very high probability of a, a lethal hit on, on a jet aircraft up to five miles and 11,000 feet. Is it used exclusively uh, for, for aircraft or could it be used to indiscriminately uh, shoot at a uh, high rise? Well, it's it's made for aircraft, anti-aircraft. I mean, it could be used, sure, to shoot at anything, but mm -hmm. um, how the technology e is for aircraft. How easy is it to uh, to learn? In other words, if if some young recruits from uh, you know from Ukraine uh, were given it, uh, how long would it take for them to be trained on how to use it properly? Well, the, the to be functionally trained in it uh, adequately to, to use it competently, uh, 30 minutes. Wow. Uh, plainly more training would be better, but right. yeah, about half an hour or so. And javelins, tell us about uh, what they do uh, effectively or ineffectively. So a javelin uh, has replaced what a weapon system we used to have called a dragon, which uh, was a, a, a wire guided missile. It had two wires that came out the back and a computer fed information to it in flight. Mm -hmm. But the, the gunner had to keep his sights on the target during the entire, even if the target was moving, he could fly the, the missile to the target. But that, of course, was the vulnerability for the gunner. Uh, the, the javelin um, is a fire-and-forget weapon. Uh, once the, the gunner uh, sees the target through his sight, he has to hold on target for about five seconds or so to, to tell the, the missile, okay, that's what I want you to hit. Okay. He then launches it. Um, it also, when it fires, it, it kind of kicks out of the tube a little bit before the, the main propulsion uh, system kicks in so that it's safe to fire from inside buildings. You couldn't do that with some of the older systems. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and then it takes off. Um, it usually goes into a top attack mode. And so it'll, it'll head towards the target and then, and then move up into the air and mm -hmm. come down. The, uh, the strength of, a, of, the, of the armor on most armored vehicles is uh, least on top. So it might target the engine compartment. Uh, uh, if, if, if one were to go to the next level up, not, not an aircraft, but some other form of equi military equipment that we've not heard bantied about in the news media, what would it be? I'm going to give you some time to think about it. Okay. But again, is there an interim between the Javelin and, and, and a fighter jet uh, in the warfare uh, involving Russia and Ukraine? I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. Along with Patrick Hanley and Gene Ives and uh, Bill Myers, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight.
145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. First, we want back on Beyond the Beltway in search of world peace. We haven't found it yet, but uh, we've got some great guests trying uh, to uh, share their thoughts with it. In hour number two tonight, we're going to be joined by an old friend of this program, Dr. Nigel Rabb. He is a Russian history uh, professor at Loyola Marymount uh, in uh, California. And again, if you're a longtime listener to this program, uh, you will recall the name Nigel Rabb. He'll join us for hour number two. Uh, in hour number one, we have great guests, and we're going to let them uh, introduce themselves briefly today. And we're going to begin with Jeannie Ives. Jeannie? Well, thanks for having me on your program again, Bruce. I'm Jeannie Ives. I'm a mother of five, a West Point graduate. I ran for governor in the state of Illinois 
three-time term state representative, and now I run a policy advocacy organization, and we're there to connect the dots on policy so voters are more informed when they go to the polls. And when you were at West Point, uh, what were your courses? I mean, we, do, do you major in, a, in, a, in something at West we Point? We had just, I had been uh, one of the first classes where they actually <clears throat> allowed you to have a major, so I majored in economics. <laughs> But everybody has a full uh, slate of core courses from military law to um, military history. You know, everybody takes psychology and two years of math and two years of science and on and on. Very good. Uh, Patrick Hanley joins us. Patrick, I described you as a businessman and and as a management consultant, but... uh, uh, fill in some of the blanks there. What else do you do? No, that's right. So I work with my wife uh, at a company that she founded called Piglet. We sell linen beddings, pajamas, uh, homewares, and sleepwear. Uh, you can find us online at pigletinbed.com. We've got a warehouse in Northbrook, Illinois, and in Sussex, England. Did we ever sell any on the, the night before Christmas? You know, I think we did. I think we, we might have. I, I yeah. pitched everybody last that's minute right. the holiday gifts. Got to send oh. you the uh, the commission check. Now, you are also <laughs> a guy, please do, Uh <laughs> Uh, now, you're also involved in politics. Yes, that's right. Do you want to run for something someday? It's possible. It's possible, yeah. Does uh, your wife want you to run for something someday? Yeah, I think she'd find it <laughs> exciting. I mean, we'll, we'll see. We don't know. William Myers joins us, uh, Major United States Marine Corps retired. Uh, he is a friend of a friend who was uh, uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and you're doing a great job, Bill. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, where you served and what sort of uh, work you did for the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, so I'm a Hoosier. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, graduate of Indiana University. I went to Marine Corps in 1973. I retired in 1998. I was uh, I started out as an infantryman, enlisted, uh, got a commission rather quickly, and uh, served as an infantry officer for the rest of my career. I was um, uh, an infantry officer and a, a reconnaissance officer. Uh, I spent some time doing uh, conducting training, specifically at the uh, six-month-long uh, basic school that Marine officers go to to learn how to be an officer, how to be a, a platoon commander. And I taught weaponry there, uh, mainly machine guns and anti-mechanized weapons for a couple mm-hmm. of years. Um, and uh, basically worked in, in that sort of a realm for the, the longest time. But I retired. I've done a number of things uh, since then. I actually worked for uh, the company that makes the tow missile system for a couple of years. So I kept okay. Uh, kind of knowledgeable about that. Now, but I'm retired now, living in Indianapolis again, and we have three kids. They're out there living their own lives and raising families. Good. That's me in a nutshell. And grandchildren. And grandchildren? Uh, four, I think. Four. <laughs> at, at the moment. At the moment. Uh, before, the, before the break, uh, I, oh, yeah. asked, I asked you a, a military uh, uh, equipment uh, question, and it was about because we've we've heard everyone ask for stingers, or at least uh, Zelensky's asking for stingers and javelins, and obviously uh, he wants uh, the uh, uh, you know the no-fly zone, which doesn't look like it will happen, at least based on what the West is thinking right now. Uh, what's the next thing that maybe the public doesn't know about? And was be, 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 between the javelin and an aircraft. What might he be asking for a weapon that maybe uh, uh, is relatively new? Well, those are those are the new things. The um, the tow missile system that the the U.S. uses uh, and others is is just a, a phenomenal system, uh, but it's it's pretty well classified. It's got capabilities that are beyond the the Ukrainians' uh, capability to okay. mm-hmm. to uh, to really use, um, and so. Uh, 
I mean, that would be something good. Of interest, by the way, while I was studying this thing, everybody's talking about javelins. The the Ukrainians make their own missile. It's called a Stugna P. Stugna P. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they have a YouTube video you can track down. They they had a direct hit on a truck at three and three point four miles. Wow. Which is farther than a javelin. Yeah. And they also so, they knocked out a lot of bridges. In fact. One of the reasons why we've been seeing the same story about this stalled uh, forty-mile uh, uh, convoy is that they up uh, they blew up a bridge at the end of the or at the beginning of the convoy, and that's why the convoy can't go anyplace. Well, that's so exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened uh, to <clears throat> repel the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. Is it mm-hmm. was important to blow up those bridges so that you halted Hitler's uh, Panzer Krieg coming across. Uh, you know, into the Ardennes and stuff like that. Those are really important things to, to make note of. And it's amazing what you can do, even with unsophisticated weapons, to yeah, beat yeah. back the enemy. And I think the Ukrainians are doing a, a hell of a job, uh, given what they have. They're using it to their maximum yeah. extent. How would, you, how would you compare uh, the morale, uh, Bill, with, uh, obviously, we've heard so much and we've seen uh, the spirit of the Ukrainian young men uh, who are all engaged in this process. And, and they have been compared with the young Russian conscripts, which one would think are, are people that are just out doing a job and they don't like the job. Uh, is, there any, is there anything else? I mean, how, how are veteran military people in Russia, do you think, are, are getting really just, they're, they're going crazy because the world uh, world media is is explaining that the Russian media isn't what it's cracked up to be. Yeah. I mean, they're almost rubbing their nose in it. Well, and, and we've seen that happen before. Um, I think I, I told you when we talked on the phone the other day, I was able to work with some uh, Lithuanian uh, soldiers a few years ago. And, and of course, they, they're right on the border with Russia. They're scared to death that Russia's going to roll over them. But uh, they were they were contemptuous. A few of them had been conscripts and uh, were just miserable during the time they served in the Russian army. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that Russia comes at you with a lot of material and with a lot of people. Uh, they're not necessarily their equipment isn't as good as Western gear. Their their troops probably don't seem to be quite as as uh, as high in morale and and willingness to go. Uh, anecdotally, we're hearing a lot of that. Um, there's a there's a quote I heard a while back about in a, in a war it's not as important how many people you show up with as as it, who they are, mm-hmm. and um, I think that pertains to the Ukrainians right now. We're mm-hmm. we're hearing an awful lot of stories about how valiantly they're fighting, and they are. Uh, so uh, they're still they're still outnumbered, not gunned. I think we have we, we we have heard uh, over the last uh, couple of actually about the last ten days. Uh, Senator uh, Graham uh, of South Carolina suggested that uh, maybe we should be thinking about assassination of Vladimir Putin. Uh, nobody wanted to respond to that. Uh, it's against U.S. policy. Uh, people may be wishing it. People may be planning it, but they sure as aren't going to be talking about it. But my, my question to you would be, uh, we've also heard that there are Russian mercenaries whose goal is to go out and, and kill uh, President Zelensky. What would be the impact on the on the on the people of uh, of uh, the country of uh, Ukraine if that happened, and what would be the reaction of people around the world? 
because he's become almost a, a superstar on the world stage. Bill, I'll let you tackle that one first. I think uh, that would be such a stunning emotional uh, battle cry. Uh, Zelensky's a hero. He's a hero around the world. Yes, he is. And if he were to if he were to, to uh, be killed in this war, he becomes a martyr mm -hmm. for people to rally around. And uh, I think that would make the Ukrainians stronger. And while I have the floor, if I can say something, not, sure. maybe you don't mind me saying something controversial. No, hell um, no. <laughs> Vladimir Putin is the head of the Soviet military, mm -hmm. so he's a he's a he's a military man. Uh, I'm not saying we send a sneaky assassin into Moscow, but if that guy, if something, if he got hit by a truck tomorrow afternoon and or had a heart attack, the world would be a better place. Yes, it would. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not assassination to think that maybe he's a target as well. Yep, Patrick. My my question to you is: uh, You're you're a young man. He's got a, I think, a decade on you, uh, President Zelensky. Mm. What do you think would happen if he became a martyr for? His cause. God, what an absolute hero. I mean, the reality is he's got he's got a statue coming in Kiev and all the major cities of Ukraine already. If he becomes a martyr, he gets a statue in every major city in the world. So he goes from being uh, a regional hero to a global hero. I think it catalyzes uh, Ukrainian nationalism to an extent larger than it is now, which is at fever pitch. Um, I think it only helps them. Uh, in the war. But first, let's take a step back and say, I, I don't think it's going to happen. and I certainly hope it doesn't. Jeannie Ives. Well, we all know that Putin's <clears throat> trying to assassinate Zelensky, so I think that there's probably some actors on their on their side yep. that should be trying to do the same thing to Putin. Right. And, and not to mention, he's got a <clears throat> terrible reputation of putting his enemies in prison camps and mm -hmm. actually having them killed anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, let's give, give him his roots with the KGB. Are we surprised by this? We should not be surprised that he's playing dirty. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, if he were to be successful and take out Zelensky, I think it would um, it would galvanize the, the, the Ukrainians even more. I think that, uh, you know, while the leader matters, if you take out a leader at this <clears throat> point, it's going to it's going to be total war against the Russians. Would, I think it is already, it by the way. I just think that more people are going to be supplying them as readily as they possibly can. I think also for Putin, who I think is an egomaniac in addition yes. to everything else, mm -hmm. uh, it would be one more miscalculation. Mm -hmm. Yes, he miscalculated that that he was going to somehow keep the West, you know, di 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 diverged, and he's done. You know, that's not happened. Then he then he then he didn't think that the Ukrainian people were going to come together like they've come in and shown the resistance that they've shown. So if if he thinks that. Uh, uh, Zelensky would not become a martyr with all these statues around Europe. He is clearly nuts. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. 
One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or know one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue uh, talking about uh, what is likely to happen in Russia, and we'll talk more about that in the second hour this evening when uh, Nigel Rabb uh, joins us. Uh, But, Bill, while you're still with us, this is one more segment with you. Take us, if you will, inside what you think the military conclusion of this war might look like. I think that the weight of the the Russian power is too great for the Ukrainians to, to fend off forever. I don't think that Russia can necessarily take over all of Ukraine with any hope of of, uh, containing it. So unless they get some sort of support or the situation changes in some way to their advantage, Mm -hmm. I I think uh, force on force is going to be a tough road, regardless of how heroically they fight. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we were talking the other day, the uh, that region of the world has a long history of uh, partisan conflict Mm -hmm. and I think that I hate this phrase, but I think that if if Putin ends up dominating most of Ukraine, he will have created his own Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably going to be ambushed over there nonstop for the next however many years he decides mm-hmm. to stay. Exactly. And um, a worse experience than Afghanistan, possibly. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Now they also, had a bad experience there too. Uh, 
what is the western part of Ukraine like? Because most of the action we've seen thus far has been in the east and in the south, just off uh, Crimea, uh, and that's where the, the, the cities have fallen at that particular, uh, as of this moment. But what's in the western part? Is it, uh, is it open lands? Is it farm fields? Is, is, it, uh, is, is that really the breadbasket of Europe? And uh, I think you just acknowledged that would be a harder part of the country maybe to, uh, to, to protect. Well, and it would also back up against Poland and Romania and all of the, mm -hmm. all of the NATO countries who are already actively uh, receiving refugees and pushing supplies through to them. Mm -hmm. um, Ukraine overall is, is a much flatter sort of a, an area than I thought when I, I first started taking a close mm -hmm. look. So it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not the rugged yep. mountainous area necessarily. Yep. I mean, there is, there is that. Yep, but it, but, it's, it's um, huge, right? It's huge. Mm -hmm. One thing yeah. I wish that uh, news media would do is they, uh, early on, they made a point that Kiev is about the size of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I wish as they give their reports on cities that either have been taken or where there's heavy fighting going on, I wish they would add uh, what is the similar size to a United States city. So they would get a sense if they're talking about, you know, the third or fourth largest city. People don't want to take time to maybe look that yeah. up, but I mean, if it's the size of Cincinnati or Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I, I think that that's just a, a news media suggestion uh, that I have. I want to go back to you, Patrick. Uh, give us look, look into the crystal ball and uh, uh, answer this question. Right now, the West has said no to a no-fly zone. But these images are on television all over the world, especially in the United States and all the Western countries. They're not, they're not being shown in Russia, as we know. Hmm. Over time, do you think that public opinion, mm -hmm. which doesn't like the idea of a possible World War III, no. nobody does, but could the power of those pictures force the people to force their leaders to think more broadly about maybe opening up a no-fly zone? That's interesting. I actually don't think it would go that direction. I almost think, you know, perhaps cynically, that it would go the opposite, that eventually images of destruction and stories about war, uh, you know, they, they harden the minds in the West oftentimes. I mean, how long after the beginning of the Iraq war did folks start looking other directions? But I, I think what's going to happen in the next several weeks is that the Russian economy has already halved in value. I think it's going to fall apart. And we're going to see whether that pressure on Russian citizens is going to have any impact on Putin's decision-making. And if, if Russia falls apart, they're going to come to the negotiating table real fast. Quick answer, Jeannie, to my question about just the, the images. The images they're of, powerful. of women and children. I mean, They're very powerful, especially if you live in a, a metropolitan area in the United States. You're going to have <clears throat> Ukrainians that are part right. of the fabric, and you hear from them directly. Mm -hmm. I just had a young Ukrainian uh, walk up to me. He's a U.S. citizen. I said, I, want, I just want to get back there. My mother and my sister are stuck in western Ukraine. She works, my mother works for a power plant. She's ex considered an essential worker. She cannot get out. She can't flee. I want to get to a NATO country so I can help with the refugee situation. My mother does not want me to come back because she knows I'll be conscripted. So we, there's personal stories that come over that I think have an impact. But the bottom line here is that if, if the Ukrainians can hold off the Russians mm -hmm. long enough for the, their economy to literally collapse, I think you will have sort of a color revolution that may happen in Russia, where they will actually demand that Putin negotiate and negotiate. Maybe he gets to keep the eastern part. Maybe he keeps Crimea. 
uh, which I don't think that that's a good solution either, but maybe he does, and they come to a neutral standing here. But if he were to remain there, mm -hmm. I, I, there is no doubt in my mind it's going to be a slog fest for a decade, maybe two decades, of them just never getting along and them biting at each other for the entire time. One of the things that... And uh, Russia can't sustain that. One they of absolutely the thing, cannot. One of the things that Putin is concerned about, he doesn't like the idea of a friendly country right next to him, which is one of the reasons why he went to... In addition to this historical belief that you know he owns uh, you know Ukraine. But again, if he's successful, if he takes over the entire country, his next-door neighbors yeah. are going to be Romania, mm -hmm. Poland, uh, Lithuania, mm -hmm. Latvia, Estonia... I mean, all of his neighbors are going to be Western neighbors, with the exception of Moldova, which, you know, sort of... That, I think that was an excuse. I think that was an excuse. It'll be great to talk right. with, about this in the next hour with uh, the Russian historian. But sure. honestly, he wants to reestablish sort of the, the Russian... The good old days. ...caliphate, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so or, that's you know, good, that's, yeah, that's what point. he kind of wants to do. And it's, he's, that's his mindset. He cares about Russia. He cares about Russian history. And they, he cares about... Russia, um, Russian hegemony. So that's yep. where he's after. Okay. Well, we'll talk. Yeah. First, can I uh, make a comment? Well, yes. We get we get fifteen seconds. Go ahead, Bill. I don't need it. Uh, he would he would inherit a one thousand six hundred and fourteen mile border with NATO countries. Yep. <laughs> sleep <laughs> yeah, sleep go. tight, knowing that you've done that. <laughs> Again, thank you, Bill Myers, Major, a retired United States Marine Corps. Thank you for joining us from Indianapolis this evening. Uh, Patrick Hanley and Gene Ives will continue with me in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us. Nigel Rabb uh, from beautiful Southern California joins us next to talk about the future of Russia. Back shortly. It's a bully. But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. I mean, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. 
Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with our number two of Beyond the Beltway. And uh, uh, we welcome uh, Dr. Nigel Rabb. Uh, he is from Loyola Marymount University out there in California, and uh, he's been a guest on this program frequently, and he is a, a Russian uh, expert and uh, Russian history, and history is being written every day uh, at this very moment. So, Nigel, nice to have you with us. We have uh, Jeannie Ives and Patrick Hanley with me in the studio, so they'll uh, chip in with a question or comment uh, as the program uh, goes forward. Uh, my, my first question to you is, what do you think, and I realize nobody knows this, what do you think... Vladimir Putin's next step would be if a no-fly zone was imposed. I, I well, I think the, yeah. I hope everybody can hear me. And, and hi, Bruce. And very nice to be back. Yeah, good. I think uh, if there were no-fly zone, I think it would be a, a disaster. <laughs> I think I think it would open up the conflict to be so much wider than we than anybody wants it to be. So a no-fly zone would be a it would also be a logistic disaster. So. Yeah. Let me ask be... you let me ask you one history question. Mm -hmm. uh, if the United States had had acted differently in 1938 and 1939 uh, after Hitler uh, entered Poland and began his quest for Europe uh, and the United States uh, didn't do much. Uh, is there is is there, is there something similar to this that we're dealing with right now that the United States were imposing sanctions but the sanctions, at least as of the moment, and albeit they're only a week old, they don't seem to be uh, stopping people from uh, dropping bombs on innocent uh, women and children. I don't know. I, I think it's a very different situation because somebody like Hitler, he sort of had the idea of Lebensraum and he wanted to expand and create this idea mm -hmm. of a Third Reich, <clears throat> expansive. I think the danger in the Russian case is first is expansion into Ukraine. And I think it's very important if you want to have an equivalent, I'm not sure it's the right equivalent, but it would be a little bit like Nazi expansion into Austria, where they mm -hmm. see this cultural connection. Mm -hmm. Russians see a cultural connection with Ukraine. But I think the danger is not not the immediate westward movement, but the other areas which were formerly part of the Soviet Union. I think that would be a, that would be more in danger. And that's why I think the Baltic states are very worried. Moldova is very worried. And the probably places like Kazakhstan are very worried as well, especially since they just had recent um, uprisings in their streets. Uh, 
So what's the next thing that you are looking at as a, as a Russia watcher? What's the next big move that you want to see? So as a Russia watcher, what I've been paying attention to, uh, obviously the war is a tragedy. Obviously the refugee crisis is, is such a stark reminder of World War II. But I really think it's also important to look at the media landscape in Russia and see what's happened literally in the last 48 to 72 hours where there have been laws introduced in the Duma and it took like 12 and a half minutes to get it introduced to fly by all the different all the different levels and grades so that you cannot write about you know you basically cannot write about the war and newspapers in russia have stopped writing about the war you also have iconic radio stations have been shut down echo moskvi which was 1991 is right there with the collapse of the soviet union they have stopped broadcasting and so that transformation in russia is very very concerning because they're just not getting the news they are not getting the news and you're you're hearing stories about because remember these are two close countries mm-hmm. they're two very close countries <clears throat> now taking the train from moscow to kiev it's like taking the it's like driving from boston to to montreal type of thing mm-hmm. um and yet so you've got your father in russia son in ukraine i mean there's just been a report on that one father has no idea what's going on in Ukraine, Joe, they're just not getting the news. When Joe Biden goes on the air and talks about all the sanctions that the United mm-hmm. States and the West have imposed, uh, that's information that I'm as- assuming is also not making it to the Russian people because it's, it, it may be too, you know, too high tech uh, or high finance uh, for the average uh, Russian to, to figure out. But I, I learned coming down here to do the program this evening that Visa and MasterCard mm-hmm. They have suspended operations, commercial operations and retailer operations in Russia. So it seems to me that if, if I have understood the story correctly, that if a Russian goes in and wants to buy something tomorrow with their visa card, it's going to be turned down. Now, that gets to Joe and Mabel average Russian pretty quickly. Whoa. Oh, it's been the, the impact has been almost immediate and in, in numerous <clears throat> ways. For example, Russia, since the fall of the Soviet Union, and this is a good thing, it developed a tourism industry and the, the tourism yeah. to all to, to Europe and whatnot. Now, for example, because I last time I go, I get my train tickets from a Russian Russian website. It's like Expedia. And the last thing I get is an email from them. It's like, listen, customer, you can't fly to these and these and these countries. However, right. if you want to fly abroad, you can possibly do this route. So they're deeply aware of this. The MasterCard and Visa, as far as I know, is for foreign exchanges. Mm-hmm. You can still go to a store in Russia and you know buy your milk with your Visa card or something okay. like that, and that'll be serviced by your bank. The, the sanctions in the newspapers, they're reported. They're all reported in part because this is part of a general story about the West is, is right. basically against Russia mm-hmm. and always mm-hmm. has been and always will be, and therefore it's a good thing that we're finally speaking out. Jeannie Ives has a question for you. She is a Republican mm-hmm. activist, a graduate of West Point, and uh, uh, she uh, ran for governor and for Congress, uh, and she joins us tonight. She's got a question or comment for you. So it seems that Russian disinformation <clears throat> goes uh, not just to the U.S. and political campaigns, but it's obviously disinformation to their own people. And uh, so d- this obviously is to tamp die down any uprisings or whatever. But uh, do you think that ultimately <clears throat> that this, however this invasion of Ukraine ends, Putin is beyond damaged. He's, he's got to go now. What do you think that his own people will do in the end? 
That okay, so that's a very good question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. Loaded. Historian, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is like 1917 when the Tsar falls. Mm. There, when the Tsar falls, there are political parties ready to step in with a vision, and we might not agree with those visions, but they were there, practiced, and ready to go. In Russia, it's a very difficult, different situation now because there's no real. There are alternative parties. The Communist Party is still still exists, mm -hmm. but there's no strong developed alternative in case something happens in the Kremlin. And in, in case, for example, the war becomes so disastrous, there are massive protests. Mm -hmm. So I have a difficult time thinking about which party would actually step in and fill a void if if this war goes incredibly badly. And yeah, so. Patrick Hanley's got a comment. Yeah, and so glad that you're on with us, Professor. Could you characterize the the scale of Russian protests in the last week or so, kind of relative to strikes and protests they've had in the past? Is this a sea change, or is this something that's, you know, kind of a flash in the pan? Um, I, 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 I'd be hesitant to say flash in the pan, but I, I think there are, this is not a major strike. It's not a national strike or anything like that, in yeah. part because the information networks are, are dominated by national television, not mm. Echo, Echo Moscovy or not Nova Gazeta newspapers like that. But there are protests across the country, which is a good sign that there are voices speaking up and they feel now, I mean, it's changed again, changed in the last 24 hours. Now they feel a, sort of as if they can speak up. They're risking jail terms, but they're mm. not, they're not risking execution or anything like that. So, so there are mm. strong protests. Are these mass uprisings? No, they're not mass uprisings. Okay. But what's starting now is the reports of the soldiers. The first reports were we've made by the pause. Ministry of Defense a few days ago. Nigel, about... we've got a pause. We'll pick up oh. on the other side. Don't go away. Okay. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're continuing with Nigel Rabb in California, Patrick Hanley, and Jeannie Ives also joining me around the microphone uh, here at the Salem Studios in Chicago. Uh, before the break, Nigel, you were just about making a point, and then we had to cut away for the commercial. I'll let you finish that point if you care to. Oh, I was, I guess I was just talking about the mass, the mass movements. The other one I just wanted to add, though, is in terms of the masses in Russia and protests, they're not getting information from Ukraine. There's just not getting information mm-hmm. from Ukraine. And so this is why people don't even know exactly what's going on. Uh, let's got a call. Uh, let's go to Ben, who's listening to us in El Paso, Texas. He has a question for you, Professor. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, yeah, I do have a question. Uh, have you ever heard of a, a man called Alexander Dugan? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have? Yes. I, I, he's no. known for supporting this grandiose vision of Russian empire. And that's, and that Putin sort of listens to, listens to that story. And I, I gotta be honest, like, you know, I, I've heard of him many times. It, it, it just seems that this invasion of Ukraine is so fantastical in a sense of just unbelievable. It's such a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't think it would lead to that. I, I honestly, cause you know, Russia has had an empire late 19th century, it's huge, the Soviet Union, is as one likes to say, it's the size. It was the size of Mexico, Canada, and the United States combined. So they do have a history of bigness. But but Russia today is still 1.7 times the size of the United States. So it's it's huge as it is. Why extend into these areas? So I I was I was really shocked by, but this this attempt to bring the because that's what it's looking like to bring in all of Ukraine under the Russian fold, which which I just it's it's inconceivable. So, but he, but oh, so it's it's a, it's a real live guy basically who. Uh, who whispers in the ear of uh, Putin, and and yeah. uh, Putin uh, listens to him from time to time. Yeah. But do you know how key, how key an advisor he might be now, or is he more of a historical figure from years ago? Oh no! So he's he's could be in the could <clears throat> could be in the whispering room in no. you know today. But to, one thing too, if you've seen recent broadcasts of Putin, he is very isolated, right. very right. very isolated. And we when he met with his Security Council. Now, I guess it's 10, 12 days ago. Yes. 
they all sat like 50 feet away from him. They didn't get close to him. If you remember the image of Macron, where mm-hmm. they have one of the, the yes. world's longest tables, they're nowhere <laughs> close to each other. And so there is this, this increased isolation. And so it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly who he's listening to at the moment. Is and that you, you can, is that based on his yeah. on his fear of uh, of uh, of COVID, or is it va- based on his paranoia that people may be trying to kill him? I would have said COVID because it, it, he actually over the years has made every effort to go out and mingle with people and to be seen on work sites and at festivals and stuff like that. We know mm-hmm. he's played hockey for the uh, with the Russian national hockey team, and mm-hmm. I mean stunts, of course. But he is out and about quite a bit. So, yeah, what I, I, we, I think it started as COVID. It I might think, now be more, what more fear of just. Uh, th- thank you, yeah. Ben, very much for your call. What do we know about about Putin's wife? He's, this is a second wife. He recently mm-hmm. divorced. But what do we know about his children? Does he have grandchildren? That is an excellent question. Uh, he has a daughter. I I, to be honest, I don't know if they have children, but what I'll add to that children, one two girls. is just oh. he, and if you remember Gorbachev, back mm-hmm. in the Gorby mania, back in the late 80s, Gorbachev always showed up with Raisa, his wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is what softened. This is why there was this Gorby mania, because there was this idea that he wasn't just some, some block leader. He was a human being with feelings and emotions. Right. He showed up with his wife. Raisa Gorbachev was a very good friend with Nancy Reagan. Yes. They got along really well. And that softened the image. Now you don't hear, like, you never hear about family in, like, reading the Russian newspapers. You don't hear about his grandchildren. You don't hear about anything like that. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a weird, that's, that in and yeah. of itself is very weird if you're used to Gorby mania from the late 80s. Yeah. So. Well, I saw a little bit, you know, this this from the image of uh, him with his uh, shirt off on a horseback. But yesterday <laughs> mm-hmm. he was meeting, and in, in, in all these things going on, he was meeting with yeah. a Russian <laughs> stewardesses. Yeah. He had a huge yes. table and, surrounded by be- beautiful yes. Russian stewardesses, and I, I you know, I, I was waiting for Donald Trump to show up. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I could just add one little bit there, stewardesses and pilots. So. There were pilots in the room who were asking questions and that i mean that was a sur bit of a surreal meeting because in that meeting you know they're taught they're this aviation industry that's what they're interested in and he's going on and on and on about the reasons for the war in ukraine and and keeping in mind you're not allowed to refer to it as a war in russia and and it's almost as if he had to get something off his chest that he was worried about it mm-hmm. And that he kept on talking, sort of like you had a bad day at the office. It was a thing. It was a very weird conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's go to David listening to us in San Francisco tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Go ahead, David. So, yeah, yeah thanks, Bruce. Uh, yeah, question for your uh, guest regarding the, uh, the social contract that uh, a leader is supposed to serve the people and serve the best interests of the government and not be uh, beholding to his own private interests. So I'm looking at the idea that Putin is lobbing shells into a, a nuclear power plant. If that plant breaks down and 
you know, goes out of control and spews radioactive smoke in every direction, it's going to get to every one of Putin's villas as well as everybody else. So the idea that the local governments in uh, in Russia, and hypothetically if he's hanging out in Moscow or one of his villas, every one of those county governments have got a way to do what's called a psychiatric hold, uh, to do a 72 three hour or excuse me a 72 hour hold on someone to do a psychiatric evaluation whether or not putin would be up as a in a social contract to be uh, given a psychiatric hold and that this madness uh, be uh, uh, tempered with some kind of reason i can't believe he's worried about a social contract but go ahead nigel i wouldn't um I wouldn't think of it as just Putin here because he is surrounded. I mean, there's Lavrov, the foreign minister, who has been saying exactly the same lines. It's Shoigu, who's the the top guy in the military, and they all talk and they start. They start all the same way. It's the denazification and the demilitarization of Ukraine. So, in terms of this war in Ukraine, he he has people around him who parrot the same lines. So he's not he's not alone on that one. And yeah, so I, and I don't think I don't think any psychiatrist in Russia would be would be willing to do the test. That, yeah. That's another thing, yeah. too. So he has supporters. And, and I think that's important, too. And he's for a long time. He's had supporters and, and supporters who who appreciate him for what he's done for their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And in this case, supporters who, who think in the in the in a manner of empire, like like what seems to be happening in mm-hmm. Ukraine. Well, th- thanks very much for your call. No, we got to we got to move on. Uh, uh, last week at the United Nations, we had like 144 nations basically uh, condemn what Russia was doing. Is there any other role for the United Nations here? I mean, since they're supposed to be in charge of peace, uh, what are they doing next? I think as far as the United Nations goes, because I, I know I understand that sometimes one has misgivings about the role of the United uh, Nations. Yes. I don't think it's going to be a peacekeeping force in this because mm-hmm. I think. I mean, Russia has a veto right on the Security Council, which I think you could see in those in those United Nations meetings. Right. We're dealing in it with a conflict which involves a, a massive military power, like a massive military power. And so there's only so much you can do. But I do think the United Nations is playing a role in the refugee crisis mm-hmm. and they can yes. monitor that. And and as one of the delegates at the United Nations said there, OK, so we might say. United Nations can't take a military stance. It's just not their role in this. But it is a forum for conversation. And it was a forum for the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations to basically speak out as the invasion is starting. And so it is a forum for conversation. We need that forum. We can't you, we can't be isolated. Do you, you know, know? And I mean everybody on the planet. Do you yeah. where do you think Putin is getting his information from now? I mean, you say he's he's yeah. concerned about what the Russian people are are seeing and learning. Where do you think he's picking up his information? I mean, that's an excellent question because is he is he at some level just getting the same news that every Russian gets because yeah. his advisors to him that's the story they is want to get, tell. But here's my question: Is he getting present? is he getting the same information that we are getting? I mean, if I'm watching Fox or I'm watching NBC mm-hmm. or I'm watching CNN. The way that they're collectively reporting it is, this is a bad military operation. It's like the Keystone mm-hmm. Cops, and this vaunted, you know, world power, you know, military operation, looks like it's going nowhere. I mean, if I'm Putin, I gotta be, I gotta be going nuts just watching the Western 
coverage of this war. It makes him look yeah. impotent. I, 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 he has. He obviously can watch whatever he wants, but I don't think he's choosing to watch that. And if you listen to him, so for example, his explanation: why, why is there this column, or why is, why does it seem slow? Why is the invasion yeah. not going faster? Right. And he'll explain it by saying because we have to take out basically every single military air base, which takes a long time in such a large country to secure the skies. And once we've done that, then we'll do the ground invasion. But he's, he's, he explains it that way. So he won't explain it as if something's gone wrong. It's basically, this is a very large task. It's a big country. We have a lot to do. And once we've secured the skies, he he underestimated them. Bottom line is he underestimated them. But I, here's what's more important. I mean, I talked to the uh, American Lithuanian uh, honorary council general, general on my podcast. And, uh, you know, the first thing that, I, you, that you, when you talk to anybody, if there are Ukrainian citizens here in the United States, if you talk to somebody like my Lithuanian friend, who is a U.S. citizen, by the way, a prominent doctor, um, his, their first thing is Putin is a war criminal. How do we, we, he needs to be prosecuted for crimes against humanity. He, get, he is a war criminal. They want something done with him. I want the reaction from that, but we do have to pause. Don't go away. I'm Bruce Dumont. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. We are back on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, before the break, Jeannie Ives asked uh, uh, Nigel Rabb about uh, whether Putin is a war criminal or his perceived to be a war criminal around the world, and uh, uh, obviously I don't think things like that bother uh, Putin, uh, do they, uh, Nigel? No, I don't. I don't think that is a concern of his at all, actually, in part because I, there's, I mean, Russia is a more militaristic society than the United States. So the military has an exalted status. And that's why right now, if you write bad things about the military in the Russian newspapers, you can get up to 15 year prison sentence. That's the law that was just passed. So I don't think he's concerned about that. On the same, on the same note, I mean, he was a young, a youngish guy, I suppose, when Chernobyl exploded. They they understand, like, Mm -hmm. for example, because there was just been shooting at the the nuclear power plant in the south they understand what a nuclear catastrophe is they're not they're not blind to that one and i think for the, the chernobyl power plant which they seized in very quickly i think the the general idea would be either one side gets it or the other side gets it but whoever gets it just takes it let's not fight over it because yeah. it's just too much of a potential catastrophe with that but yeah. no i don't think he's worried about about a war criminal and i should add one thing too if you were to bring this question up on a russian tv show the first thing they would mention would be the war in Iraq, sure. and then they would mention Abu Ghraib. That's mm-hmm. the first thing that they would do from their mm-hmm. side. On the on the subject of, I mentioned this in hour number one. Obviously, uh, uh, Putin has said, uh, you know, he's rattled his uh, his nuclear sword, uh, but that was before the incident involving uh, the nuclear plant. And I asked the question in hour number one. The attack on the nuclear plant, do you think that perhaps was what Putin was talking about when he introduced the concept of nuclear retaliation and that he wasn't talking about bombs and planes, but he was talking about a nuclear incident that would affect the war? Is that, Or, or is that just a coincidental attack on that uh, nuclear power plant? I think it was just a coincidental attack on the nuclear power plant because they do re- often refer to themselves as a, as a nuclear power. That's just a, that's a very standard reference that you can you can listen to in many speech you can hear in many speeches, and it refers to their their nuclear arsenal, which they're very well aware of. They're they're very well aware of that. So, if you were uh, either President Xi of China or you were sitting in Taiwan, mm-hmm. how would you be reacting about the way? that Russia and the West has responded to this incident? Would you be encouraged? Big, Would you be dissuaded? Well, we have 20 minutes I, to go. I mean, one of the things... 
Well, yeah, well, yeah, we do. One of the things that I, I the one in terms of that relationship, I think Russia is going to find itself more dependent on China, mm-hmm. and that's going to strengthen China in the long run, which is a concern for the West. But there's a miscalculation there for Putin because, Again. in fact. The West, like Germ- places like Germany, do lots of business with Russia, and Germans and Russians interact very well. So, mm-hmm. um, I think if you're if you're in Beijing at the moment, it's almost as if you're you're just watching to see how this thing turns out. I mean, you you have you have the the luxury of being able to be patient. And, and what? Uh, go ahead, Patrick. Did you want to make a comment? Yeah, go I was going to say one thing, and and she is seeing whether or not the United States president can get the West together whether the, mm-hmm. the U.S. president can get the allies to play well together. And that's an important point that I think has been answered. But will that feel the same if some, there was an incident about Taiwan? Would the European folks, would they feel the same way as mm-hmm. something so close to their own center of gravity? Well, that's what the quadrilateral is for. That's what Japan, yes. uh, but that's, India, but that's, Australia, and the United States yes. are there to police. But that's not Britain, Germany, France. And yet Japan and Australia have both been supportive in this crisis. So it's the West Plus, really, that we're looking at. Now, I asked the question how, uh, how those countries would respond uh, to, uh, to Russia. What would, what would the reaction of Poland and Romania and Estonia, uh, what, what would their reaction be if Putin is successful and is now their new next-door neighbor? How would they view the way in which the West and the United States handled this circumstance? To date, I think they would be satisfied with what the United States has done. And I think because one of the things which is a critical issue here is there's NATO Mm -hmm. and there's help through NATO, but there's also what Poland does independently. And so, for example, because the United States is considering supplying supplying airplanes to the poles and of right. course this is this is a very fine boundary the u.s can give planes to poland but not as a member of nato because right. then it gets very tricky and so there are all these things but i think the united states has actually uh, blinken was just there the united states mm-hmm. has stepped up in ways which show that they're ready to assist they're ready to assist poland and ready to assist mm-hmm. romania and, and i do think and i i, I mean part and part of changed my mind on certain things here but the the nato presence is absolutely critical right now for poland and romania that is that is absolutely critical even you know nato is an older organization formed right after the end of world war ii and there are criticisms of it but in this moment it's absolutely essential poland would just be i don't know what they where they'd be if they didn't have nato but again uh let me let me look to if 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 there's success if Putin has success in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, does he stop there? I mean, is this the end of his search for putting the USSR back together again? If he's successful here, or does he keep going? And if so, where does he keep going? I'd like to be an, an optimist on this one, because if you if you look, Napoleon invaded Russia, and the Russians pushed pushed Napoleon back, but the Russians never stayed in Paris. They went back home. Russians have certain interests. Now, Poland was a part of the Russian Empire until yep. uh, until the fall of the Tsars. I don't think Putin would go west into Poland. I, I I might be wrong. I think his interest 
would be areas which have strong Russian, <coughs> excuse me, ethnic populations. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Kazakhstan might be a might be a concern, especially because the border with Kazakhstan is so so different and so easy to cross in terms of geography. So, no, I don't think he would go west. Uh, and I might be wrong. And, and again, Poland was not part of the Soviet Union. Poland was part of the Eastern Bloc. Romania, there's mm -hmm. a tiny strip in Romania that he might want, but not. I don't think the whole country, in part because Romania is, um, again, Romania was not in the Soviet Union. And and Ukraine is, in the in the his heart, he believes that Ukraine is an original part of Russia. Mm -hmm. He does not believe that about Poland, and he does not believe that about the Baltic states. Right. So Ukraine has a bit of a special status, yeah. and, and Ukrainians, com Ukrainians completely think that he's distorted history on that one. If Poland was out front, however, on loaning their planes to give mm -hmm. to Ukrainian fighters, which again, that appears to be the most obvious thing on the table at the moment, uh, mm -hmm. would there not be some special or would, would Poland move to the top of a retaliation list? Because he has said mm -hmm. any nation that helps kill Russian mm -hmm. soldiers is is going to get responded to. Yes. And the problem with that, though, is because, yeah, you could have a Polish plane take off from an airfield yeah. and you could have Russians just bomb that airfield so they can't take planes off anymore. Right. Be done with that. But the Russian attack on that airfield would be an attack on a NATO member. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's where NATO would kick in. And so that, that, that's why it would become a broader issue, which is worrisome. Very, very worrisome. Is he, you think he's worried about, you, uh, about uh, militarily? Do you think he's afraid of uh, NATO militarily? Well, the, I was going to say, first, the worrisome is that I'm worried, personally. But um, <laughs> the other... The other one is NATO. I, yeah, I do think he's worried because I, I, I do think as you're watching this army unfold, and I think Jeannie made this point earlier about the problems the military is having. Mm -hmm. He did over the last 15 years build up the military strength. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. they, had a, they had a test run in Syria. I guess that would be their best for a test run. But they haven't, they haven't had a full-scale operation yet. So there are risks that things can go wrong. And I think deep down, the military staff knows this, that this is, they are, in a sense, going into uncharted territory. Sorry, that's probably the wrong word there, but the uncharted waters here. And, and so they, there must be a, a concern that this could go wrong. And so, yes, they might also fear that NATO is better organized than they are. Pat, Patrick? Well, and, and to your point, and it has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. What is the signal that this botched invasion sends to all of Russia's other friends and allies throughout the world. I mean, you know, you look at places like Syria or Serbia uh, that were banking on the support of the Russian army, and now they see that the Russian army is, you know, really not what it was all, all chucked up to be. But I have a quick question for you, if I can. Uh, there's a big debate going on in the IR community about whether or not this was a war of insecurity in response to NATO enlargement or a war of conquest and imperialism, as we've kind of talked about tonight. How, how do you think about that? Was this more uh, Putin responding to uh, a strong and scary West, or was this Putin uh, reestablishing the, the Sardom? I would say it's a bit of both. On the one hand, I, I truly do think that with Lavrov and Putin and the inner circle, they're just fed up with not getting any concessions from NATO. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the early yeah. 90s. And I know there's, you know, did the U.S. promise, yeah. make a promise, or did the U.S. not make a promise? And is there a document out there yeah. that proves this? What did Baker For them, say? that's not the issue. It's basically <laughs> don't expand NATO and don't even put it on the table, and they are just frustrated by that. So that's part of it. And then the other one, um, imperialism, 
I would say he wouldn't think of it as imperialism because bringing Ukraine in is bringing a lost member of the family back for him, mm-hmm. not for most people, but for him. You're bringing a lost member of the family back. So it's not really imperialism in his mind. Central Asia might be imperialism, but there yeah. it's sort of we're we're orthodox citizens. You're going to, yeah, you're going to, the problem is you're going to be bringing back a member of the family that is uh, well-armed and is probably going to shoot you yes. at every opportunity. I'm Bruce Dumont. We do have to pause. One more segment coming up. Don't go away. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. (laughs) 
Bruce Dumont back, and uh, before we go too much further and before we run out of time, I want to give everybody an opportunity to sort of, for those the people, for those who may have just tuned in, uh, you've missed a uh, couple of hours of, of good shows tonight. Uh, Nigel, what do you think happens next? In the next three well, months, three years, whatever so, the time frame, what happens next? So one of the things that in terms of one of the earlier comments about, you know, the first, the, so far this invasion has been botched. I mean, one of the things is we're only in day 11 or day 12, and this can go on for years. And so if you think of the cities that have been destroyed, if you think of the migrants that have fled, at some point they're going to have to go back home. And that's going to be another process as well. So I think what's next is somehow Putin has to end, end the war. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, that ha it has to end. I mean, it has to end. I guess you're, that we have to find a way to end it. And then the West has to put continual pressure on on the Russian economy. And we're going to have to wait and see that what happens to the Russian economy. They have reserves and they're ready. And then, of course, one has to maintain a, a strong, not just a Western response, but a global response, which includes Nigel, extensive dialogue with China. For, for the war to end, has the West given Putin enough space to create uh, an exit for himself? Have they given him an out or is he totally cornered? I think that's an excellent question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, I think they need to think of better ways to give him an out. Yeah. I think they, they really do. So for example, and this would be highly contested, but maybe that the Crimean Peninsula is just recognized as Russian. And I, I think that might you know, that might be an out, that there's something like that. So, but it's very difficult. I think the, that's something the West has to work on. Jeannie Ives, what's your answer to that same question? And also the future aspect of it. Well, I have no doubt that we're going to um, amp up our supply chain to them in, in terms of military equipment. And that'll be important to, to putting Putin on the path to negotiate and an end to this. I don't think that he can sustain this. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really don't. Uh, he's going to have to add a lot more forces. The fact that he's had a stalled 40-mile-long convoy for this long is just unbelievable that he couldn't push through. I mean, if he had had a patent, this would have been done in a day. Um, so it's just it's remarkable that, that that's been stalled. So I think he's, he's got his work cut out for him. I think he, he's feeling the pressure. He's got to feel the pressure. But the, the Ukrainians are not going to give up. So um, how does this end? This ends by us actually forcing him, I think, more into a corner. And uh, I, I would hope we don't just all of a sudden give up the Crimea. But that would mm -hmm. be something actually that the Ukraine would have to decide to do. At what level does mm -hmm. Zelensky, that's the question, what is mm -hmm. his next move? What does he want to see happen here? That. Can that's the question. Does the United States add something go quickly ahead, go about ahead. the 40-mile column? Because it's sure. apparently it's it's like 20 columns, which are two miles long each. That's my math is good. It, 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 okay. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's basically they the, the the movement of the different columns just came together yep. like a traffic like a traffic jam in Los Angeles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they're a sitting duck. Yeah. Let's go to Patrick. Uh, look into the crystal ball. Tell us what uh, you think is likely to happen uh, if this war is to end. Yeah. What I'm what I'm seeing everywhere is costs. Uh, rising precipitously costs on the Russian economy, costs to Putin personally, also costs on the West as energy prices rise. I think that all is going to force everybody to the negotiating table. It is my hope that uh, Ukraine negotiates its way into independence. I think the the 
the alternative to that would be a 20-year civil war on the likes of, you know, at the mm -hmm. Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, I think would be a, a horrible, horrible crisis. What I don't understand is where does the West and Russia go from here? How do we do we remove sanctions on Putin in the inner circle? Do we recouple Russia to the global economy? And if we don't, is this the beginning of an anti-Russian, anti-Chinese, potentially uh, economic mm -hmm. block uh, developing, you know, before our eyes? Uh, Nigel, what do you think? I of think that? Those are, oh, no, I think those are excellent points. Because, for example, the decoupling of the Russian economy, yeah. what's really important is that until 2014, in the Crimean Peninsula incident, the Russians were trying to couple themselves yes. to the Western economy. Like they were making efforts to integrate with the Western economy, and Germany's the best example of that. Now that's been isolated, and it pushes them, it pushes them to, to China, whereas historically, Russia has always had a love-hate relationship with the West, as in some Russians love it, other Russians hate it. But despite the fact that it's had a, uh, a love-hate relationship with, with the West, it's always had its strongest relationships with the West. Mm -hmm. so. My question is this. Is there anything that President Xi of China could say or do that would expedite mm -hmm. the end of this war? Is that for me yep, or is that, that Patrick? You. You're nodding. Go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Nigel. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a tough one for China because if you look at the way they've reacted in the Security Council, they clearly have come out for Ukrainian sovereignty, but they also have a massive border with Russia. And they also understand that for them, as I said that earlier, this is a moment for them to sort of weaken Russia vis-a-vis -vis China, and they can exploit that. And so they're they're doing this balancing act, which, and I think I said earlier, it's patience. They're, they're I mean, I guess that's their, what they should do is wait this out and, and monitor. So. Patrick? I totally agree with you. I think one winner out of this whole thing, similar to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, is China. By waiting, by watching, by not getting ahead of their skis, uh, they're going to be able to take in a weakened Russia as a friend. They're going to be able to... Uh, you know, I, I, I think they come out in a stronger position. Will it, be, will it be a weakened West or perceived to be a weakened United States? No, absolutely not. I think it's a unified West, if anything. Okay. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot to be said about the Russian economy. I mean, this is obviously part of the reason that the wall fell and that the Soviet Union collapsed is that their economy couldn't sustain this uh, fictitious idea that they were strong at all or that they could keep mm -hmm. up the military strength. Uh, so the economics matters, and that's mm -hmm. why we need a strong America, quite frankly. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I've got to say farewell to Jeannie Ives. Thanks very much. Also to Patrick Hanley and also to Nigel Rabb uh, for being with us this evening and also a Major uh, Myers in our number one. I'm Bruce Dumont. Our thanks to Fritz Goldman you, for his assistance in the production of this program. Nigel, when we met many, many years ago, I think I said we'll probably do a lot of shows because Russia will always get in the news. And uh, they certainly have figured out a way to do it. Thanks very much for joining us. Good night, everybody, from sh Chicago. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact 
of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.